This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Voices of Vapors. This is where we discuss all things related to tobacco harm reduction, notably electronic cigarettes and vaping devices. Today, we're going a little bit outside the foray of THR specifically, um, and we're going to be discussing menthol cigarettes. While they're not a tobacco harm reduction tool per se, menthol cigarettes are now being attacked and banned across states as policymakers are banning flavors in e-cigarette products. Today, I have Jacob Rich. Policy analyst at the Reason Foundation, um, and he covers healthcare policy, including prescription and illegal drug regulations. His background includes a master's degree in mathematics and ec- economics from Eastern Michigan University. And prior to Reason, he was a research assistant at the Cato Institute, and he um, examined economics and opioid policy. He's also the co-author of the Reason Policy Study titled Does Menthol Cigarette Distribution Affect Child or Adult Cigarette Use, which analyzed whether there's a strong positive relationship between the distribution of menthol cigarettes and youth um, cigarette smoking. Thanks, Jacob, for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So can you, I always do this, can you just give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and your work at Reason? Sure. Hopefully, well, this might be a lot of background, but bear with me. I'm a trained health care economist who currently focuses on prescription, recreational, and illegal drug policies. I became interested in healthcare care um, after writing my graduate thesis on state-level predictors of suicide. Before, I actually studied financial engineering and high-frequency trading and initially intended to work on Wall Street, to be honest. But after seeing how applicable statistical methods I learned in mathematics were very applicable to healthcare, I noticed that there were many more opportunities to advance the literature and health policy and that my contributions might actually save lives. Uh, one of the first things you learn in financial engineering is actually a major topic in physics called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. It's the idea that you cannot simultaneously know where a particle is located and its velocity. The more you increase your understanding of either location or velocity, you lose precision of other measurements. You need to know that for finance because in the stock market, the moment you locate an arbitrage opportunity to make money and act on it, it disappears. That's because the stock market is the most competitive market known to man. And when anyone makes a move, all the best competitors learn about the opportunity and immediately may make their moves to make money. And all the money you could have made basically disappears immediately. Healthcare economics, however, is unique because knowing how variables relate to each other does not change the nature of the relationships. The the competition of knowledge in healthcare does not interfere with whether medicines or public health interventions actually work. This means that the analyses that we have developed by metricians of various fields are extraordinarily powerful in determining whether certain phenomena predict various results. At the moment, the methods developed at econometrics and epidemiology tend to dominate the healthcare discussion. And in my work, I've done my best to employ these methods to healthcare topics that I find to be the most crucial to creating a healthier society. When I was in college, I determined that states have higher suicide rates because of their low population densities. When I was later hired by the Cato Institute, I reevaluated the relationship between opioid prescribing and opioid death rates showing that there's actually a negative relationship between those variables because black market drugs disproportionately cause more overdoses than prescription-grade narcotics. 
On that topic, I'm actually currently working with the Cato Institute and the Mayo Clinic to submit those results to peer review. And finally, we're using these statistical analyses to determine whether marijuana use at the state level predicts increases in either mental illness or violence, which seems to be untrue for both variables. Oh, wow. That, that's a pretty impressive background <laughs> and, and, oh, highly, and, and highly entertaining. Um, okay, now let's just move into the, the, pol- the new policy study on the menthol cigarettes. Um, why exactly did Reason choose to look into this? Like I said, I try to focus research on the topics that can save the most lives. According to almost all public health organizations, smoking is the leading cause of preventable death in the United States and the entire world. If there is any sort of contribution we can make in understanding the relationships between the availability of various tobacco products and the use rates of different populations, it can only help us in saving lives. Menthol is interesting because when I was exposed to the topic sometime last year, the literature seemed quite unanimous that cool, cooling mint feature made menthol cigarettes easier to smoke and more appealing to youth. The idea made sense, but I was struck by how little data analysis was used to make that conclusion. There were basically no statistical analyses that attempted to predict youth tobacco use rates with menthol distribution. Also, anecdotally, Almost all smokers I started talking to of any age seemed to despise menthol, and I started to become weary of the idea that menthol products posed any sort of relative risk to regular tobacco products. So I asked my co-author Guy if the data existed, and he said yes, but they might be hard to acquire. All right, let's go and talk about the report, and how did you collect your data, and then also what were you trying to look for? What were the variables that you were um, analyzing? Yes, we actually reached out to R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company for industry distribution figures of all menthol and regular cigarette sales at the state level. We did not at all inform them of what we were going to do with the data, and we were quite upfront that we were going to publish whatever results we found, regardless of how damning they might be to the menthol industry. Nice. So <laughs> I then acquired those, uh, the smoking rates of youth and adults from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration which is a subsidiary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. With those data, the distribution figures and the use rates, we basically set out to see if various levels of menthol distribution increase smoking rates of youth or adults. It's basically that simple. Does one, does any sort of increase in menthol distribution happen to predict uh, increases in use? And yeah, those results are pretty cool. (laughs) Did you, okay, let's talk about your results that you found. And then also, did were there any like state analysis or any interesting things that you guys came about doing these, when you did these analyses? Yeah, the results were pretty cool. Uh, the initial results were actually staggering. On average, the states that distributed the most menthol cigarettes relative to all cigarettes being distributed had the lowest rates of youth smoking. Oh, wow. In addition, yeah, I know, right? In addition, while both menthol and regular cigarette distribution decreased throughout the country during that period, 2008 to 2018, menthol actually started representing a larger and larger share of total cigarettes being consumed. And that finding was quite odd because during that period, teens went from preferring menthol cigarettes around 2008 to preferring regular cigarettes by 2018. So during this period, you had more menthol cigarettes being distributed relative to all cigarettes, but a smaller share of teens smoking menthol. 
So on the surface level, there seemed to be absolutely no relationship between menthol distribution and teen smoking. But these average relationships are not indicative of a predictive causal relationship. They might have just been coincidental. So we utilized a panel model that is pretty standard in econometrics to determine whether menthol distribution predicted changes in smoking. And it didn't. The only predictive relationship that held was the relationship between adult smoking and youth smoking. And we saw that helping adults quit was the best way to reduce youth smoking. I think, and I forget, and I, I, like I said, I scanned over your report, and there was, and then one of the things you guys also looked at, like, um, now is there a relationship between what a youth smokes and what their parents smoke? Were you able to get into that um, analysis? No, we couldn't. We we don't have individualized data. We only have average relationships at the state level. So for the results that we publish, we're quite we're quite uh, confident in those, but we can't really make those type of micro conclusions at the moment because it's just general aggregate uh, state level data. Yeah. Okay. And there, I know that I've seen that report. Like I think years ago, when the menthol bans were looking um, at that, they were you know most youth most youth smoke what their parents smoke, and there is a relationship between youth smoking and their parents smoking. Um, so what are what are the policy implications for this? But, um, you know, in like, I mean, it's kind of major if you look at it, because I know what you, you brought it up, the fact that, oh, menthol, I know you hear the argument that more children are, you know, they are they're attracted to menthol because of its cooling properties. As a smoker, I hated menthol. I still hate menthol unless like I'm, I'm you know, desperate. Um, definitely not something I liked even growing up or anything. But my parents also smoked regular cigarettes, not, you know, non-menthol cigarettes. Do you think that this can change the narrative with the policymakers and these bans they're pushing forward with? It depends if they like to listen to data or if they're just politically motivated. The policy implications are quite simple. Menthol cigarettes are not more dangerous than regular cigarettes for youth or any other age group. Menthol smokers tend to smoke almost half as many cigarettes as regular smokers and consequently have healthier outcomes. I think it's quite interesting that the the prohibitionists in the tobacco sphere tend to be going after the subset of smokers that are actually smoking the least amount of cigarettes, you can kind of interpret that as them actually having healthier smoking habits, and they are going to be the first ones to lose the privilege to smoke the products that they prefer. Um, So yeah, in general, if tobacco controllers want to prohibit menthol just for the sake of making as many tobacco products illegal as possible, that's their prerogative. They might be able to make that case. But if they say menthol poses a unique risk to public health, a unique risk that's greater than regular cigarettes, they are just wrong. Regular cigarettes actually pose a much greater risk to public health than menthol cigarettes. And the way they're going about this just really isn't scientific at all. It just seems like it's a grab to make as many products uh, illegal as possible. And they really don't have any evidence to suggest that uh, the flavors are making these products any more appealing to youth or dangerous for adults. You brought it up, and um, can you kind of so you mentioned that menthol smokers smoke half as many cigarettes than non-menthol um, c- cigarette smokers. Can you explain some of that more? Yeah, the CDC uh, periodically conducts surveys on the amount of well, not on the amount, on the percentage of the population that either smokes menthol cigarettes or regular cigarettes. Now, when making these calculations, we did have some broad assumptions. One of the broad assumptions was that there wasn't much substitution of regular and menthol cigarettes. For example, we assumed that 
basically whenever a menthol smoker smokes, he's only smoking a menthol cigarette. And that is kind of an extreme, that is sort of an extreme assumption, but the, the implications of our analysis seem to be true. At least directionally, they're correct. So basically, we predict, we uh, calculated the number of cigarette, of regular cigarette smokers in the country, that we calculated the number of menthol cigarettes in the country, and then we compared that to the distribution. And when you compare the distribution figures, there was about, I think, 190 uh, packs smoked a year by um, menthol smokers. And then relative, I, the uh, regular cigarette smokers were somewhere in the 300 range, to be honest. Oh, wow. it was quite It was quite high. There was quite a large difference. Now, yeah, so it was actually 190 compared to 364. Now, assuming that substitution does take place, these figures aren't going to be exact. But there's no way that the direction is not true. It's absolutely true that menthol smokers smoke significantly less cigarettes than regular smokers. And somewhere, uh, if it's, it's probably somewhere um, south of 50%. But it, it can't be too far away from that. Folks, it's back. This is Donald Kendall from the In the Tank podcast at Heartland, Heartland's 14th International Conference on Climate Change, the biggest and most important gathering in the world of scientists, policy experts, and policy makers who are rightly skeptical that humans are causing a climate crisis. Join us May 7th and 8th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, where you can see, listen to, and meet the prominent men and women who are brave enough to publicly tell the truth about the climate delusion and what this means for us all. And get your tickets today at the early bird price of just $199 for the two-day conference. Go to heartland.org for more information on our climate conferences, which summarize the best available data on climate science and energy and recommend policy changes that will place America at the forefront of a post-climate alarmist world. Again, act now for the special early bird prices, which won't last long. Go to heartland.org and we'll see you May 7th and 8th in Las Vegas. So I've done some research on you know, menthol bans. Um, and, and there's a lot of implications with those. Um, the stuff I've seen, you know, the illegal market. Can you talk more a little bit of the research you guys might have done at recent reason about, you know, what does happen when I know there was, there's a, a study that was done that was like, you know, a quarter of these people, they were like, well, I wouldn't quit smoking and I'd go get, I'd go buy them illegally if they were going to place, you know, a menthol ban. Can you talk more about the, um, you know, what would happen with, with bans put in place? I'm much more familiar with the illegal opioid market industry because okay. I've just been studying that for so long. Yep. But in general, from just the brief review that I've already done, because this is actually the next topic I'm going to jump into, there does seem to be a significant black market that's created for all tobacco products that are banned. I know in San Francisco that they actually saw major increases in Lucy cigarette sales and the, quote, illegal cigarette sales in their city after they started banning menthol. Yeah. And the more they cracked down, the more that they actually saw the illegal activity going up. It's kind of interesting how black markets work because the more you actually crack down and restrict the uh, black market supply, the more expensive the drug becomes, which is just basic economics. So you crack down more, you actually increase the price incentive for the smarter 
uh, traffickers to supply the drug. And yeah, I mean, in general, that's why I just support the legalization of all drugs in general, because it seems like my you know, kind cracking of libertarian. Down. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is just like a general prohibition uh, talking point and just theory that I've just come to believe because of looking at the data. The more you crack down, the more the black market exists. And it's usually more costly dealing with the black market than just educating consumers to show temperance towards their products. So, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to do more research on that. But, yes, whenever tobacco products are made illegal, a black market does come up. And how large it is, I guess, will determine in the future. Okay, awesome. Um, and then one last question. I wasn't on the list either, um, and but it's one another thing with the um, social impl- implications. I don't know if you know much about it. Um, I, a lot of you know, you'll hear you know they the African American component um, that you know menthol is used to lure ac- African Americans into smoking. Have you done any research on that? Um, and I know one of the arguments that I always use too is that you know with these with if you put this ban in, you're going to have even more scrutiny, more more police officers dealing with African Americans and illegal products. Um, has Reason looked into any of that? Uh, not too much. Okay. I know that African Americans tend to prefer menthol. I don't know why it would be worrying to them. I mean, they actually smoke at a much lower rate than uh, white people. Yep. So the idea that they're being lured into it relative to white people seems kind of ridiculous. Yep. They just seem to have a preference towards menthol. And that seems fine. There's nothing inherently more dangerous about smoking menthol cigarettes relative to regular cigarettes. And again, people who smoke menthol cigarettes tend to be healthier too. So it's it, does, it doesn't really make much sense to me why um, why there would be a narrative of basically tricking that population into smoking menthol versus regular cigarettes. Okay. So, yeah. Well, and I think it comes down to one of the things, too, that, you know, um, that you're seeing is that, you know, people tend to smoke what their friends and family smoke. Um, it's the same, yeah. it's same way with e-cigarettes and kids using them, um, not because it's available in blueberry flavors. Um, well... Um, any any final thoughts on your report and that um, you'd like to let our listeners know? Yeah, a couple things. Um, just back onto uh, like black smokers in general. I mean, I I, I don't usually play uh, discuss much of this too too often, but I mean these these laws are going to disproportionately affect the black community relative to the white community, and if the enforcement if you're going to enforce these laws and you want these laws to work, you're going to disproportionately be affecting the black community. I mean, that's, that's obviously going to happen if these laws go forward. And I don't think that's good. There's no reason that this community should be punished for, for for preferring a flavor in their cigarettes. That's absolutely ridiculous. And that will happen if these laws go forward. And they're actually proposing these laws at the national level as well with Cologne's bills. So that's, that's scary. You know, I, I usually try to stay in the public health, just general life save. I, I don't usually try to look at um, different populations. I usually look at all lives being equal. But I tell you what, I mean, in the drug war in general, the black community has been disproportionately affected. And it's really sad that when laws are put forward, even to this day, they are going to probably disproportionately affect the black community again. And that's that's absolutely terrible that they happen to be the subject of most political actions. Yeah. And the last, right? It's a very the last valid thing point I to make. Say, <laughs> it's just true. And 
like the last thing I want to say, though, is that it's actually been quite interesting working with the tobacco industry to study smoking. But saving <laughs> lives is the most important goal of public health, and researchers are going to have to concede that the industry actually has the best data to evaluate public health outcomes. I know there is a suspicion of bias, and I will be the first to say that it is warranted. But I stand behind all of my analysis and honestly challenge other researchers at any organization to observe the data and come up with different conclusions. It's quite clear the states that have the highest relative menthol distribution have the lowest rates of youth smoking. That, that's an objective fact. And when you try to predict smoking rates, there's absolutely no predictive relationship. That's you know? awesome. So if we're going to solve the leading preventable cause of death in the world, it will take a combined effort of all parties. And I think that research in general should just be less stigmatizing and just take people more on their word. And if there's something in the research you don't agree with, try to replicate it and then try to fight it on its merits, to be honest. Oh, the scientific method. It seems that we've lost that in the whole narrative on everything. Um, but I, I love that you brought up the tobacco industry. I mean, it's, I work at Heartland. You know, woohoo, tobacco, not really. Um, yeah, there's been many things that me and the tobacco companies have disagreed with on, you know, policy-wise and um, things. But I do think that there's a lot to be said for they have a stake in providing the research out there. Um, tobacco companies, especially seeing they're embracing, um, you know, tobacco harm reduction products. You know, they de genuinely need their customers to live, you know, in order to be able to sell their product. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in general, no company actually wants to see its um, customers die. No. And I know, like with tobacco, I mean, there, there's been some things that have happened that they've been criticized for. And a lot of times it's been legitimate. But their move to make investments in vaping, I actually was applauding because... In general, if every single cigarette smoker in the United States switched, millions of people would not die prematurely. That's been, that's been documented by all the most prestigious medical journals basically in the world. It's, yep. it's quite clear how much safer vaping is than cigarette smoking. And the fact that the tobacco industry is actually making investments and trying to move its customers into vaping instead of cigarettes is quite remarkable. Yep. That's, that's probably one of the best things the industry has done in a very long time. And although when I eventually have kids, I'll, I'm definitely not going to endorse tobacco use for anyone, for any adult who's going to be making adult decisions. I think they should have the safest product available to them. And we should honestly support any sort of effort to make the market as safe as possible. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, um, Jacob, where can we find more information on the policy study um, yourself and um, Reason Foundation? Well, you can go to my Twitter at Jacob James Rich, and you'll periodically see graphs and stuff from me. And on my Twitter page, there's actually a link to bring me to my to bring anyone to my Reason.org page. And if you actually go to JacobRich.com, it'll uh, redirect you to my Reason.org page that has my bio, my studies, and my op-eds and commentary that have been uh, published. So that's the best way to reach me. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on today, Jacob. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Voices of Vapors. For more podcasts, including this series, please visit heartland.org or search for the Heartland Daily Podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneFind, Player FM, or wherever you get your podcast at. For more information on cigarettes and tobacco um, products in general, please visit our alcohol and tobacco page at heartland.org. <laughs>